Good morning. You remember being a teenager? Some of you are like, no, it was too long ago. Or you've chosen to black out those memories. I was talking with someone the other day, and we were just saying, like, you know, there's not enough money in the world to pay me to go back and redo, like, middle school, high school. Like, those are tough times. It's challenging. Trying to figure out where you fit in and where you belong and who are you and what's your place in the world. And then you add in adolescence, and your brain is, like, your enemy, and there's all these hormones going on, and it's just, it's hard. That was hard. If you're currently a teenager, I'm sorry I said the word hormone in front of you. <laughs> Apologize. Apologize. Uh, I think back to some of those times, like, just remember, like, just randomly picking fights with your family just because it's, like, that time, I guess? You know, like, I can remember those moments, like, hey, we're going to go out to dinner, and you're just like, no, like, I don't want to go. And then it becomes, like, this fight. Well, you have to go. It's like, no, you guys are the worst. You always make me do this. I don't want to do it. I want to go to my room. And then, like, then everybody's mad. It's like, well, then fine. Go to your room. We won't even go. And everyone's like, yeah, that's right. And you go up to your room, and you shut the door, and you're like, well, this is kind of boring. You know, those moments, like, you're just like, I'm just going to pick a fight. Like, that's just, that's what's next. And it's, it's winning the battle, but losing the war. You know, it's like, you just, you want to be right, and then you get up there, and it's like, but this really isn't that great. You won the battle, but you lost the war. There's actually a term for that. It's called a Pyrrhic victory. And I know that because I'm a giant nerd. Uh, I love ancient history, and uh, this is, this term, Pyrrhic victories comes from a particular point in time, the, the Battle of Asculum in 279 BC, where Pyrrhus and his Italian allies came to fight against the Romans. And they won this battle. The, the Romans suffered twice as many casualties. But the problem is the Romans had a much, much bigger army. And so they could replenish their, their ranks pretty easily, whereas Pyrrhus lost most of his commanders and a large part of his forces, and so he had to withdraw to Sicily. He won a battle, but at such a great cost, he really lost in the long run. And that's such a good picture of what sin is for us, in particular, sexual sin and, and lust that we're going to talk about this morning as we continue our series, Elephant in the Bedroom, What God Has to Say About Sex. If this is your first week here at the Ridge, sorry about that. <laughs> but we're glad that you're here. If this is not your first week, hey, thanks for coming back. Thanks for coming back. Uh, we're going to look at the idea of lust and what is it and what does it mean and how do we cope with that and how do we deal with it. And the first thing that we're going to look at is this idea that lust is a poison. Lust is a poison. We're going to look at what uh, Jesus has to say about it in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 27, he starts, You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose, part, lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So it's a light topic this morning. Jesus is talking about lust here. Lust is most commonly used as an intense sexual desire, right? And it's not a good word. It's not like an inherently good word. I mean, and think about it. Think of the ways that we use it. That's how we know. Because you don't go out with your friends and be like, oh, I am so lusting after a huge steak right now. 
That's super weird. That's super weird. You don't have a tender moment with your spouse, your boyfriend or girlfriend, and you look him right in the eyes and you're like, I lust you so much. Like, no, that's weird. That's creepy. Don't do that. Think about that. We talk about being consumed by lust. We talk about being driven by lust. It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. It's not the same as love. It's not the same as love. Because lust is desiring a pleasure. Whereas love is desiring a person. Lust is pursuing a pleasure, whereas love is pursuing a person. And the Bible talks about lust in an even more specific way. It calls it a sinful longing, this inward sin which leads to outward sin. It's a sinful desire that leads to sinful action. And sin is just missing the mark of God's perfection, falling short of God's standard. What it really is is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Jesus says here, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. And he's talking to his audience. I'm sure his audience is like, yeah, sure, I've heard that. It's one of the commandments. It's a thumbs up for that one. That's good. Thanks. I just need to avoid committing adultery with someone, and I'm fine. But Jesus goes, no, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. And Jesus raises the bar here significantly. Because he's not just concerned with outward action, he's concerned with the inward desire that led to the outward action. Jesus knows you, you can't fully correct outward actions without getting at the motivations, the reason those, those actions started. And he's saying to us here, it is a big deal. It's not a medium-sized deal. It's not like a, eh, it's a deal. It's a big deal. It's a deal with exclamation points. It is a big deal. And we know that because he says, if your eye, even your good eye, because apparently you have favorites, even if your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out. Don't cover it up. Gouge it out and throw it away. Sweet goodness. Gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. This goes further. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, it really means your right hand, causes you to sin, cut it off. Better to lose one part of your body. And there's significance to that because back in this day, in this, in this culture, this context, you, most people used their right hand for eating. That was the, the common uh, action. And your left hand was used for other parts of things that come after eating. Other parts <laughs> after eating. Like, you, like, let's say your left hand might be nicknamed Charmin, perhaps. <laughs> and so it's better for your right hand to be cut off and be left with the other hands, you know, the, the, the bathroom hand. It's, it's saying that's such a big deal, like for you to lose a hand and be left with the hand that does the other stuff. Like that's how big a deal this is. Because what he gets is that unchecked desire gets us in trouble. Unchecked desire leads us down the wrong path. Lust isn't thinking that someone is attractive. That's just having eyes and being a, a human, right? Lust isn't saying like, oh, that lady is a very nice looking lady or Brad Pitt is a handsome fellow. I don't know who talks like that, but apparently if we lived in the 20s, maybe someone would say that. But that's not finding someone attractive. It's what comes next. It's fantasizing about them. It's creating a narrative in your head and in your heart about it. It's pouring gas on those feelings and allowing them to grow and bloom into something unhealthy. That's what lust is here that we're talking about. And lust is a poison. It's a poison. It doesn't stay in one place. It seeps into your whole being. If you get bit by a rattlesnake, that poison starts here, but it spreads. That's what lust does. 
it spreads through us. It affects you and hurts you from the inside out. Jesus is saying here, it's a big deal. One of the most common ways that we see lust manifested in our culture is pornography. No point in history has pornography been as widely available and widely accessible. It's everywhere. 79% of men between the ages of 18 and 30 say they view pornography at least once a month. 67% of men between the ages of 31 and 49 say they view pornography at least once a month. This is a culturally pervasive issue. But it's not just a a man's issue. 76% of women between the ages of 18 and 30 say they view pornography at least once a month. It's a big deal. When we give in to those desires of our hearts, when we look to meet needs the way that we want them met, That poison seeps through us, and it has far-reaching consequences that we don't always see. Pornography is significant. We kind of like to think that it's like, well, you know, I know it's not great, but, you know, like I just kind of keep it off to the side. But it reshapes how you think. It messes with your brain chemistry. Scientists have done brain mapping of someone watching pornography, and they equate that to someone suffering an addiction that they see the same areas of the brain light up. It rewires your thinking to require more and more variety. You need different stuff, and it needs to be harder stuff. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's not a good thing. The same stuff won't satisfy you anymore. And, and that af- affects your marriage if you're married, right? Arousal can change. Sexual drive can change. It's addictive, It's us finding a short-term solution and in doing that, losing the long-term battle. It poisons us from the inside out. It affects the way that we view others. And for men, it affects the way that we view women. I read an expert who said that they believe that the rise in violence towards women and particularly sexual violence is because the rise in pornography as women get devalued in the minds of men. As a man, that's not okay. Men, there are women in our lives that we love and care for. We would never want them treated that way. What do we need to do in our lives, in our pursuit of purity, in our fight against things like lust in order to honor women that we love? It's used most likely as an emotional reaction to something. found that fascinating. That experts say people feel a sense, a lack of fulfillment, a lack of purpose that there's a longing for something, there's a loneliness, and so people are self-medicating with, with something like pornography that, that, is, that only offers a short-term fix and doesn't ever address the underlying issues. It's a poison. It's not just a thing, and I think sometimes it's like, well, I know it's not great, but, but you know, it's, it's off to the side. It's like, no, it, it, it is a poison. And I think we get at some level how big a deal it is because this isn't something that we celebrate. We keep it in the shadows. We hide it. We don't want to come clean about those things. You don't go to a PTA meeting and go, hey, uh, here's some pornography that I watched yesterday. That's how you get banned from campus. You'll hear people talk about, well, it enhances our, our sex life. And my pushback to that would be, you cannot hope to replicate something that was not ever real to begin with. It's not ever real to begin with. 
God's design for this, as we've been talking about over the last couple weeks, is, is to create and foster intimacy more than just pleasure. And pornography ignores the heart entirely. It poisons us from the inside out. Second thing is that lust is a prison. Lust is a prison. James 1 talks about temptation and, and the idea of lust without, really, without saying that word in, in chapter 1, verse 13, when he says, and remember, when you're being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone. Temptation comes from our own desires. Hear that again. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Temptation comes from our own desires. See the temptation cycle that, that's talked about here. These desires exist in our hearts, and when we allow them to grow, when, when they when they are given room, they entice us and drag us away. And those are words that were used in the Greek to, in, in the context of fishing and hunting because you would lure a fish to your you know, hook so you could lift them out, so you could pull them away from, from their habitat. You'd lure animals out so that you could hunt them. And when those desires grow, when, when they're unchecked, they lead to sinful actions, that thoughts aren't harmless, that thoughts grow into something else. I mean, that's like scattering a handful of seeds on the ground and going, nothing will come from that. No, they're gonna, it's going to grow into something. Unchecked desires lead to sinful actions, and unchecked sin leads to death, and not just physical death. I mean, that's not really what he means. He means a spiritual death, a separation from God forever. It leads to that because our sinful actions left unchecked is our way of saying to God, I don't need you. You don't matter. I can find good apart from you. I can find meaning and purpose and value and joy apart from you. I don't need you to, to, to make my life something significant. Unchecked desires lead to sinful actions and unchecked sinful actions that leads to death. Lust is a prison. It's a prison that we keep ourselves in. But what I find fascinating about, about the idea of temptation and as it pertains to lust is we need to be aware of that cycle because we rarely dive in the deep end right away. It builds to something, right? It builds to something. You ever heard the, the, the old sort of wives' tale about how you boil a frog? Just me? Okay. Uh, if you put a frog in a, in a boiling pot of water, the frog's going to go, no, thank you, and jump out. But if you put a, fro a, a frog in a pot of room temperature water and slowly turn the heat up a couple degrees at a time over a gradual period of time, the frog won't know by the time he's been cooked. That's what temptation is like. That's what happens when we surrender to lust is when you think about significant moments, when you think about the sexual sin that has significant implications, it doesn't just start there. You don't walk, most of the times, it's not that somebody walks in the doors and goes, fire up the pornography. Or that somebody meets someone on the street and says, let's go find a motel room and so we can have an affair. It starts somewhere. Something happens and, and that's allowed to grow and it's allowed to blossom and gas is poured on that and then something else happens and something else happens and something else happens and something else happens and then a line is crossed and then something else happens and something else happens and that's how you end up there. That's how we get there. It's a series of small things. And the problem is we didn't correct it. We didn't catch it. We didn't identify it. We didn't call it what it is. We got trapped in this cycle. It's a slippery slope. 
We get trapped in this, in this prison and we don't know how to get out and it's dangerous. I found some interesting statistics this week. Those who had ever committed adultery are 218% more likely to look at pornography. Those who had ever engaged in paid sex are 270% more likely to look at pornography. Because once we cross the line, we begin to rationalize and justify and we move the line further and further closer to the behavior that we want to partake in anyway. And so we begin to shift this way. It's like, well, this isn't as bad as I thought. And then we move a line. We don't take the line. We don't like lift the line up and walk all the way over here and plop it down. It's incrementally moved. We start here, we move it a little bit, and then we move it a little bit, and then we move it a little bit. And the next thing we know, we can't even see where the line started. Bad things happen to us when we fill our hearts with the wrong things. We become a prisoner. We become a prisoner. Let me give you a visual for what this is like. I know this can be abstract. It's a, it's a big thing. So let me give you a, a picture of, of what this means. Our hearts are the source of our actions, of our motivations. And I mean, that's where this stuff starts. And so if this is our heart, we don't always think about what we put in it. And so maybe it's watching a TV show and it's like, you know, there's maybe some scandalous stuff in there, but it's like, ah, it's not a big deal, you know, whatever, it's fine. And then it, maybe it's reading an article on the internet that involves the word cheerleader in it somewhere. And then maybe it's you stay lingering on a movie where you know there's a little nudity. And then maybe it's uh, purposefully seeking out sort of a, a, a racy website. And then maybe it's purposely engaging in, some, in more stuff specifically like that. And you kind of pour, keep pouring gas on that. And it builds, and we keep filling our heart, and we don't realize that it's, we're taking up all that space with the wrong stuff, and, it, and it's filling it up, and, and it's edging out room for other things until we look at it at the end, and it's full. It's full. We've allowed the wrong things to fill our hearts. But the hope is this isn't the end of our story. The reason we exist as a church, the hope that we talk about is this isn't the end. Because what Jesus says, what Jesus comes to say is that you're not stuck here. That Jesus says, let me fill your heart. Let me change you. Let me pour into you. Let me make you different. And so as Jesus pours himself into us, as God fills us with him, as he fills us with the right things, it begins to take up that space and push the wrong things out. But God doesn't want to stop there and say, I just want to take up a little bit of room. God says, no, I want you to be totally transformed. I want you to be different. I don't want you to be stuck in these patterns. I don't want you to be, to be trapped. And so God fills us, as he fills us with more and more of himself, then more and more of the wrong things get pushed out until there's so much less than there was to begin with. But God says, no, 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 I, I don't want you to just have a little bit of stuff there. I want you to know what it's like. Oh, this is a bad idea because this is all my water. I want you to know what it's like to be filled and then it's gone. I want you to know what it's like to be filled with me because now when we're filled with Jesus and bad stuff comes, when we're tempted, when, when we are experience those sinful desires, where do they go? They sit on top. They don't sink down. They don't penetrate our soul. That Jesus has filled us with him and so they sit on top so they're easy to remove. That's the hope that we look to. That's the hope that we look to, that we're not stuck in this prison, that Jesus is an expert prison breaker and he's come to set us free. We're not stuck there. A friend of mine uh, lived in Asia and he told me that there is, all around this house, there'd be these little monkeys. 
and uh, they had this really cool way to, to, to capture them. They'd take a coconut, and they'd hollow it out, and they'd put a little shiny object in the middle of the coconut, just this like, little tiny shiny object, and the monkey would come by and stick his hand in and grab uh, the shiny object, but now the fist would be too big to pull out the hole. And the monkey was too small to move the coconut, and so the monkey would be captured. And when he first told me that, I'm like, that is really cool. You could have your own, like, monkey army. <laughs> like, no neighbors are going to mess with you. And then the more I thought about it, I'm like, that is a stupid monkey. Because all the monkey has to do to be free is to let go of the shiny object. But the monkey is so fixated on this thing that it thinks it wants, it is willing to give up its freedom. That's what we do. When we hold on to the wrong things, we hold ourselves in prison. When we hold on to the wrong things, we enslave ourselves to the wrong thing. We say to Jesus, no, 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 I, I got this. And we imprison ourselves. And Jesus has come to say, let it go. Give it to me and be free. That's what he wants for us. Lust is a poison. Lust is a prison. And then lastly, lust is a parody. Lust is a parody. It's an imitation. Lust is a knockoff. Lust is a, is a lesser version. Look how James finishes those verses we just read, he says, so don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God, our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. Listen to that again. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God, our Father. God is the source of what is good and perfect. God knows what's best for us. God wants what's best for us. The reason that God doesn't want us to give in to this cycle, to, to allow sinful desires, to allow those wrong things to grow is because he knows that they will never lead to the satisfaction and the meaning that we hope for. That God is not trying to withhold from you something good. God is trying to give you something better. But like the monkey, we are so quick to hold on to the wrong thing in our hand. And we settle for a knockoff. We settle for a cheap imitation. We settle for Hydrox. <laughs> Nobody wants Hydrox? If somebody gives me Hydrox, my first thought is, are we okay? Did I do something? Have I, have I wronged you? We don't want Hydrox, we want Oreos. Give me Oreos. Give me Oreos, right? That's what we want. We don't, don't settle for the lesser thing because God has created us to experience the better thing. That, that's what he wants us to know. God knows that lust is a prison and a poison, that, it, that it's a parody, so he calls us to purity. And I get that that sounds like an old-fashioned word. I get it. I, I understand. I get that that sounds like something you'd use when, when you're being shamed into like, don't look at it, someone from the opposite sex or else, you know, that's a bad thing. Like, I get that. But purity is actually a deeply meaningful thing. It's guiltlessness or innocence. It's the state of being clean. And if I'm honest, that's really appealing. The thought of being clean before God, because the stuff that I do, that I feel ashamed of, that I regret, that sticks to me. And I sometimes feel like I can't get rid of that. But the state of, thought of being clean, that's being free from those things. 
Man, I want that. I love how this one writer puts it. When God calls you to pursue purity, you are not being asked to do what will deprive you of joy. In fact, you are being called to do precisely what will bring you the greatest joy. Purity is not an old-fashioned thing. It's the thing God has called us to because it is what we truly long for. It's how we experience the life that we long to know. It means fewer regrets. It means less shame. It means more fulfillment. It means more joy. That's what God wants for us. Let's put this in practical terms. All right, let's put this in practical terms for you. Imagine you're learning to play the guitar. All right, you can't wait to shred with your friends in a band that right now you're calling Food Fighters because you're going to be a Dave Grohl cover band. And so you walk out, you pick up the first guitar you can find to practice. All right, the technique is good, right? It's, it's, there's just something to that. Like the, the, the music is good. The, the, something's missing. You realize that's not your ticket to superstardom. So you need a better guitar, so you trade up. better. I mean, it's definitely better, right? It's definitely better, but it, it's still missing something. I mean, it's not totally there. It, it's not quite what it's supposed to be yet. Still a little flavor missing from it. So you upgrade one more time. There it is, right? That's what you've been waiting for. That's what you've been wanting this whole time. Thank you. Uh, but I would like to see that toy guitar used more, because I like that. I do like that. Holding out for the best is where we find the substance and the quality and the meaning that we really want. When we give in to lust, when we give in to those sinful desires, we settle for a worse version of the real thing. Why would we settle for a worse version of the real thing? Do you want life or do you want lust? Because you can't have both. What's it going to be? God has created us to experience something rich and deep and meaningful. That's what we've been trying to talk, in this series, talk about in this series. So what do we do? If, if you're in here and statistically, well, the numbers we looked at says there, that a lot of us in here struggle with this. And if you're one of the two out of ten that, that maybe don't, then you know someone. You love someone that does. So what do we do when we're here? First thing, I want to give you a couple things. The first thing is to identify it, to call it what it is, to call it what it is, to not rationalize or justify or pretend it's not a problem, but to call it what it is, to identify it, to be willing to say, hey, this isn't a good thing, and I, and I got to figure this out. I read this week a really helpful, I had not heard this before, an acronym, HALT, that points us to those areas where we're sensitive, those areas where we are susceptible to falling into this kind of sin. And it's when we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. So how do we identify those moods? How do we, know the, how do we identify those times when we are susceptible to sin? How do we identify those moments where maybe we, we need to be aware? And how do we identify those actions that we're taking, those lustful actions for what they are? Second thing is flee from it. I love this word, flee from it. 
1 Corinthians 6, 18 says it like this, run from sexual sin, and it really means flee. That's really the Greek word. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Flee. I love that word because when do you flee? When do you flee from something? When the building's on fire and you need to get out. When do you flee? When a 300-pound reptile is destroying your city. That's when you flee. Because fleeing means I need to not be here as fast as I can. It doesn't matter where I'm going. It doesn't matter what I look like. I just need to not be here, right? When you're fleeing, you're not like, does my hair look okay? I'm just curious. Like, oh, where are we going to go next? When you flee, you're just like, I need to get out of here. And Paul calls us to flee. That's how serious this is. How do we avoid being in those situations to begin with? If you're dating right now, like for instance, flee from dark basements. Nothing good ever happened to a couple that's dating in a dark basement. You know what comes out of dark basements? Babies. <laughs> Babies come out of dark basements. Don't put yourself, if flee is, don't put yourself in that situation. Is be wise enough to go, I, I can't even go there. If you're married, protect your marriage by going, I don't want to be in a compromising position. I want to flee from that. I don't want to get as close to the line as I can get and go, I got it, I'll be fine. Flee isn't standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon leaning like this going, woo! That almost ended very poorly. <laughs> Flee is going, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay back here because I don't even want to get close. So how do we flee? How do we flee? Lastly, talk about it with someone. Talk about it with someone. One of the reasons that sexual sin is such a hold on us is because we are so ashamed of admitting it, we're unwilling to talk about it. The problem is, if we couldn't figure it out before on our own, we're not going to magically figure it out now. How do we invite people into those moments of our lives? Because again, statistically, we know you are not the only one struggling with this. How do we bring other people in, learn from their experience, be encouraged by their experience, be challenged by them? How do you invite people into your life and say, ask me hard questions? Ask me questions you know I don't want to answer because I care more about purity, I care more about honoring God than I care about being uncomfortable. How do you talk about it with someone? Sometimes we're resistant because it's like, man, I don't, if I talk about it, then I'm going to feel this guilt and shame. And what I'd say to you is you already feel it. The only way to get free from that is by bringing it into the light. That's the only way we allow the love of God and his grace and mercy to wash those sins away. If you're wrestling with this, I want to give you a couple resources to be helpful. One is Celebrate Recovery. It's a great place to go. Everybody's got baggage. Spoiler alert, all of us do. And so it's a place to go and go, you know, hey, I don't, I don't have this all figured out. A place where you can go and wrestle through that and be honest and, and be candid when you share. Covenant Eyes is a great organization that has teaching and articles and even software. They have an app that's 40 days to, to being porn free. Lots of resources there. Triple X Church is another really good resource, though you got to be really careful when you type that one in. Like, really careful. ClarityCares.org has a resource page that has links and directions and information to, to kind of point you in, in the right uh, direction. There's good books, like Every Man's Battle, that talk about this stuff. There's lots of stuff. If we can come alongside you, let us know. There's lots of good resources to help you work through this. I know this can all feel very abstract. I mean, I get it. But it's, it's very real. And it has significant 
real-world implications. I want to welcome out my friend Graham to the stage. Graham, come on out. Graham uh, is a Kentucky Wildcat, and he and his wife have been coming to the Ridge for five years. And Graham, I appreciate you being here. Sure. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Graham, would you walk us through your story? Yeah. Um, so I was first exposed to porn uh, when I was working on a school project uh, when I was 12 years old. I had never seen anything like it before, but um, I kept going back to it, and it wasn't long before I was hooked. So eventually I found out what it was called, and I realized it was definitely a bad thing, but by that point it was too late. Mm. Growing up in a church, I knew that it was a sin and that I shouldn't be doing it, but I figured if I didn't hurt anyone, then you know it really wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. And so as time went on, um, I would give myself weird deadlines too, uh, things like I wouldn't look at porn in college or on this phone or laptop, or that when I had a steady girlfriend, I wouldn't need porn anymore. But all those deadlines came and went, and uh, just the struggle continued to grow. It got worse, and uh, my dependence just dependence on it just continued to grow. Mm. Uh, in college, I started dating the woman who would become my wife, and I still couldn't stop looking at porn. This escalated until one night uh, I cheated on her with someone else, and about a year later, it happened again. And so I was crushed, mostly because I didn't think I was that type of a guy. Mm. Um, or that this, you know, this addiction had become such a big part of my life. This is the person that I wanted to marry, and I had it in my head that I couldn't propose until I confessed and came clean about what I had done, but I knew that if I did confess, then she would immediately dump me. So I was stuck between wanting the relationship to continue, but also knowing that it couldn't go anywhere unless I had figured this out. Mm. So yeah, this inner turmoil really wasn't easy to hide, um, and over the phone, I ended up confessing what I had done. So understandably, she was upset and uh, hung up on me. But it was weird. I, can't, I couldn't really explain it at the time, but it felt like this sort of weight lifted off my shoulders, this kind of calm relief that finally someone else knew about it um, was really just a weird feeling. Um, now I know that was, that was God uh, lining up everything in that situation to finally help me uh, let go of this crazy burden that I had had. A few minutes later, the phone rang, and it was Leslie, and uh, she, she wanted to apologize to me for yelling and told me that God was telling her that she should stay with me. So yeah, my, I was, my mind was kind of blown, and uh, I was obviously at a loss for words. I didn't understand why she was the one apologizing to me, but you know, now I know that that was God's grace speaking through her into my life. Mm. And at this point, God put it on my heart that I needed to change for real this time, um, and a week or two later, I started going to Celebrate Recovery. And so in Celebrate Recovery, we talked maybe a little, about, a little bit about the under, underlying factors that contribute to some of these addictions. Uh, and for me, those were a lack of self-confidence and uh, to some extent, loneliness. Mm. So growing up, I wasn't really comfortable talking to girls, but I didn't really need to be because porn was so easily accessible. Um, but like a lot of addictions, porn temporarily filled this, you know, this emptiness that I had in my life. But as time went on, just the hole got deeper and deeper, and the struggle continued to get worse. Mm. Lying was another character defect that sort of went hand in hand with this type of an addiction. Um, but once I started, fo started focusing on telling the truth no matter what, I couldn't help but stop looking at porn because I didn't want to have to admit that I had done it. You know? And so in time, the lying stopped. Uh, my lack of self-confidence became a confidence in God 
and his will uh, for my life. And the loneliness was replaced by uh, family and recovery and through the friends we have here at church. So what changed for you? Yeah, so uh, I guess it wasn't until I had made this you know, turn in my life that I really, really started taking my relationship with God more seriously. Mm. I learned that in order to improve my relationship with Leslie, as well as pretty much anyone else in my life, I needed to put my walk with God first. And I needed to learn how to love others the way that he wanted me to love them. So in this, you know, this helped me on our wedding day when I told Leslie that, you know, I would, I commit myself to her forever. I was able to mean that, Mm. right? And I still mean that today. And so all this is not to say that, you know, my life is magically fixed and perfect now. Uh, The temptation still does exist, but I've learned what to do when I'm feeling tempted. And almost more importantly, I've learned what not to do, right, when I'm, when I'm struggling. Um, You know, overcoming this is definitely one of the hardest things I've ever had to take on. But uh, Jesus helped me through it. You know, he came down into my life when I needed him most and helped me lift the chains of addiction. Um, And I I couldn't have done it without him. So all I need to do now is listen to him when he prompts me uh, to do something. Mm -hmm. And any type of hardships I face, I'm able to, you know, turn them over to him through prayer. um, And I ask him for his guidance, you know, and and wisdom uh, on anything that I have to face. So, but it takes time, uh, but the more that I'm doing things now that he wants me to do, uh, the less I'm doing things that he doesn't want me to do. Hmm. Graham, there's people here this morning that are, are struggling with, with this kind of stuff. What would you say to someone struggling with, with similar things? Uh, if this is something you struggle with, whether you're a man or a woman, uh, just know that this is definitely something that you need to really fight for. Mm. Um, you can't heal a wound by pretending it's not there. Mm. Uh, you need to get someone uh, who you trust, uh, someone who won't judge you or hold this type of thing against you to keep you accountable, really, and, and someone you can talk to about it. For me, that, that's the, uh, the men in my you know, small group at Celebrate Recovery. Uh, this, this you know, issue of pornography is just incredibly, incredibly personal, but it's not something that we can fight alone. And so you need that type of support group. It's really hard, but it's so worth it. It can be so worth it if you, if you, do, if you try and fight it. Um, and even if you don't have anyone who you think of right now to help keep you accountable, I just know there's a lot of people at Celebrate Recovery who'd love to hang out with you on Thursday night. You know, we're all really, really weird people. <laughs> But uh, you won't find another group as encouraging as them, especially with this types of hardship. Mm. Graham, thanks so much for sharing your story. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's incredible. That's incredible. That's a great job. That's why we exist right here, not just for Graham, but these stories. Because we believe that there is a God who is able to reach into the darkest moments of our lives and bring hope. This is what we believe is true. And so if this is your story too, know that this same hope exists.